and welcome to Interval, the Norwich Theatre Royal podcast. With a new episode releasing each month, this show will bring you exclusive news, views, interviews and behind-the-scenes content. We will have the latest information for shows and events at Norwich Theatre Royal, Norwich Playhouse and our Learning and Participation Centre, Stage 2. If you're interested in the performing arts in Norfolk, then this is the podcast for you. In this month's episode, after the success of Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake, we learn more about the young local dancers performing in Romeo and Juliet. We took a trip to the Norfolk School's Opera Project to find out about the incredible opportunity for young students to record and perform a brand new opera. And James Dacre talks us through directing English Touring Opera's production of Macbeth. Before we begin, a quick announcement. The Interval podcast is now available on Spotify. Simply search Norwich Theatre Royal and click follow to get the latest episodes straight onto your devices. Matthew Bourne's New Adventures is returning to the Norwich Theatre Royal. Here's John to tell us more. Passionate, contemporary and set to give a new life to the classic story of forbidden love. Globally renowned choreographer Matthew Bourne is turning his attention to Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Will the two young lovers follow their hearts and be together despite everything telling them they should be apart? Shakespeare's words are transformed into a vibrant, emotional production packed with youth, vitality and Matthew's trademark storytelling. Once again, the cream of British dance talents been assembled into the New Adventures company and they'll be joined on stage in Norwich by six fast-emerging young dancers on the cusp of a professional career who'll get vital professional experience by being part of the production. One of them's Joe Barbrook, who lives near Southwold in Suffolk, and he remembers being part of the audition process. In the audition, we did like a class, and then we learned two routines, which we then performed in small groups. And the standard in that room was very high. And I mean, when I got the phone call a few months later, saying that I was a part of the young cast, it was such an overwhelming feeling. And I'm still so grateful that I was even considered to be a part of the show, let alone actually be in it. For Joe, it's a dream come true, as he's been a keen dancer from a very young age. I think it was obvious from a young age to my parents. Uh, when I used to dance around uh, in my nappy and stuff, I kind of had a love for dance. I was always interested in the way your body can move to different music. And being up on the stage, I kind of grew up doing various different like shows and dances with local village groups and such when I was a lot younger. From those early performances, he went on to dance more. He was a reserve when Matthew Bourne's new adventures brought the Lord of the Flies to the Theatre Royal and joined the all-male dance company Legacy off the back of that. He's been involved with a number of projects with them, including a specially created partnership with Legacy and New Adventures, which was premiered at the Imperial War Museum in Duxford last year. Joe says he's got a lot from being part of an all-male company. When you dance with girls a lot of the time, obviously you, it's very much, I found it was very much um, like flexibility related and stuff like that. And sometimes boys kind of struggle with that sense and almost legacy. What legacy did, they kind of focused on those areas that maybe like flexibility, for example, and strengths that boys had to obviously be better at for the dance industry. And I suppose... Yeah, that's one of the main reasons why like Legacy grabbed me and it was so different and I'd never danced with that many boys before and it was quite, not scary to start with, but almost in a way it was because I've never seen that 
so many boys who was interested in the same thing that I was. The local links are not just confined to the specially selected local cast. Touring with the show nationally is Rhys Corston, who's originally from West Norfolk and is no stranger to new adventures. He started off acting in local productions, was mentored and learnt skills with Footlights Performing Arts in King's Lim, then did his dance training at the Central School of Ballet and first toured professionally with Matthew Bourne's new adventures in Swan Lake. That was, yeah, I was sort of riding this really lovely way uh, from from training at Footlights in Norfolk and going to Centre and going up to Swan Lake. It was kind of a bit a fairy tale thing really didn't expect that at all just worked hard and it really paid off fortunately Matt came in to see us at Central because he has quite a good connection with the school because there's a lot of uh, dancers that currently dance and have danced with the company from Central so it was um, I think with that knowing that I Central was definitely top of my head because of those connections and, uh, and uh, yeah and I needed that balance on uh, for sure but yeah once getting that job with Sun Lake it was yeah it was a dream come true and yeah we tour around the world and it was like, you know, from Norfolk and being able to go to these places like Japan and China and, you know, never been that far away before. So that was, that was very exciting. For him, he's really enjoying the opportunity of helping a new generation of dancers perform. Yeah, that's great. That really is great. And these guys are um, really good as well. They're sort of the age of between 16 and 18 and going into professional vocational training, uh, which is great. And uh, it's an exciting part to of this of this uh, contract to be able to sort of nurture young talent and you know, see myself more as, as a tutor role and a you know an older because I'm quite a lot older than most of the people in the cast now which is which is different it all started very differently years ago but now I'm the other side of it so it's a new challenge in terms of the style of dance for Romeo and Juliet things are a bit different from some other new adventures work as Reese who plays Mercutio explains yeah it's a good transition actually it's been really nice I've done a lot of bits and bobs throughout the years sort of it's more contemporary sort of contracts where this sort of material, well, I've done this sort of material before, so I'm, I'm quite comfortable with this. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of floor work and getting onto your knees and doing all that sort of stuff. So it's, uh, it's a challenge, but I've, I've done quite a lot of it before. So, yeah, it's sort of matching a lot of my strengths at the moment, which is good. And he promises audiences they're in for something very special. If you're looking for something completely different, um, story, taking sent in a different direction uh, with some young talent and throughout the country you should definitely come and see this because it's not only about the show which is fantastic we've got some of the new Avengers dancers that have dancing in the company for years and some real brand new dancers and then of course with the with new talent from each venue and that project in itself is a, is a great experience and it would, it would yeah I just say get, <laughs> come to the theatre and grab a ticket for the show if you can because it will be um that he's very much one to remember, for sure. The last word, though, goes to Joe Barbrook, who's counting down the days to his time on the Norwich Theatre Royal stage and the chance to indulge in his performing passion. I think when you're up on a stage, I think that it's a feeling that you can't really describe. It's very exhilarating and it's exciting, and I always, I think I always love that feeling of people almost watching you and you, like, you don't have to be yourself when you're up on that stage. You can be whoever you want to be. Matthew Bourne's New Adventures production of Romeo and Juliet runs from Tuesday the 3rd to Saturday the 7th of September. Four Norfolk schools are getting the opportunity to perform in a specially written children's opera on the Theatre Royal stage in June. The newly commissioned 50-minute long children's opera is adapted from Mozart's classic The Magic Flute. The piece has been commissioned by Norwich Theatre Royal and the Norfolk Music Hub in association with the Come and Sing Company. A recording of the brand new orchestration 
will form part of a resource pack that will tie in with the national school curriculum. Gillian Shaw from the Norfolk Music Service told us more about the project. We are recording, playing together and recording for the first time, a mix of a kind of magic flute. This is a magic, that uh, this is an opera that fuses Latin American music with Mozart's magic flute in a really unique way. It's going to be given to all the primary schools in Norfolk and secondary schools if they'd like to use it next year to put on their own opera. Um, we've got the Kingsling Festival Chorus singing the choir parts and students from the Gifted and Talented programme playing in the orchestra. And this is part of a much bigger educational project, isn't it? Can you tell us about that? This is part of the Norfolk Schools Opera Project. The theatre approached the Music Hub last year to see if we could find a new way of working, um, rejuvenating a fantastic programme that brings opera into schools. We're looking at um, making a legacy project, so schools across Norfolk and actually across um, across Britain, because there's been a lot of interest in this project, can um, access opera in a new way. So this really is the second stage. The first stage was having the opera created. Um, we worked with a creative team and they basically took the story, rewrote it for primary school children and then rescored it for orchestra and three different choirs. We got the, record, uh, the resources about four weeks ago and we're recording all the resources now. Um, the next stage is after Easter we have a launch for primary schools where we teach the teachers the resources. The resources will go on our website and the Theatre Royals website and schools and children can access the resources to learn them and sing along to. Then in June we're working with four primary schools in Thetford and those children will come and perform the opera on the stage alongside four amazing opera singers with the gifted and talented pupils playing in the orchestra. Um, in addition to that, there's between six and 700 children going to be sitting in the auditorium and they will be singing lots of parts of the opera. They will become part of the opera. So four schools from Thetford will perform it on the stage, but 600 children will be singing from the main auditorium and uh, making some fantastic bird noises with little bird whistles. Uh, and it ends in the most um, a dramatic finale. Um, running up to that week, we will be working with the Come and Sing Company in the four schools in Thetford. They're all going to come together and they work with the director for each school and a vocal trainer for each school. And they spend four days putting that opera together, learning the resources, learning the libretto, learning and um, working out the spe speaking part. They've got some drama that they've got to make up for one of the movements. Um, and then on the Friday, we have two dress rehearsals with the whole ensemble ready to put it together on the Sunday at the Theatre Royal. Some of these children, presumably, will never have heard opera before and then suddenly they're taking part in one. What sort of benefits do you think the project will bring to them? Some of the children have not even gone very far beyond Thetford, so this is bringing a real opportunity to engage children in literature as well as music that is really different to their normal learning. Um, there's a, a lot of evidence to say that children performing on stage um, ha has enormous benefits back into the classroom, the confidence, um, the skills, working together with other people. 
those are some of the benefits that will come in. Um, the children uh, performing the audience, uh, the children performing in the audience schools um, will be very much part of this project. They'll be engaging in a slightly different way, but we're hoping that this is a way to bring opera into schools um, and to to show the beauty of opera um, in, in a language that children can understand. At the end of this opera, they'll all know the main themes, um, maybe not quite the, the, the words that go with those themes, some very interesting words, including frying pans and snakes. Um, hopefully they'll have a love of opera, but certainly they'll have developed massive skills, massive confidence skills. When we take it to the Albert Hall, that's a life-changing experience for those pupils. We took um, our symphonic wind band, 60 children, to London a few years ago, and it really did change lives. Nearly all the children that take part in this project will have the opportunity to go to the Albert Hall. We're working with a couple of special schools as well, hoping to be able to bring those pupils along too. We also spoke to Eleanor Bowers Jolly from the Come and Sing Company. As a soprano, she told us about tackling the adaptation of such a big opera and making it suitable for children. Well, the the original flute um, libretto is there's it's it's multi-layered. There are so many different layers, um, some of which are not necessarily appropriate for children. Um, and what we decided we would do as a team is strip it back to a much simpler storyline about um, how if you're a good person, um, good things will happen. If you um, are kind, if you're humble, if you show love, um, you will um, triumph overall. So we decided to try and make it a lot more accessible for the children really sticking to the, maybe the, the main theme, the main overriding theme of flute, um, but stripping away all, all of the kind of the excess um, multi-layered aspects of the storyline. Are, are there particular challenges in writing for children? Yes, little voices are not necessarily as agile as others. And you have to be very careful um, to promote healthy singing and healthy singing practice from the very beginning. So when we, uh, we were taking um, the themes, motifs from flute, putting them into, into this kind of salsa-orientated score, um, we were being very conscious of... Um, Tessitura, which is the area of the voice that you're singing in, making sure that it's very comfortable for, for young voices to sing and not going to put them under any strain in any way. And it's, it's also about the schools, I think, working together within a, a musical community, if that makes sense. Tom and I, and I know the Music Hub, are very, very passionate about bringing communities together through music and through song. And I think this project is an absolute... Um, dream for that kind of that kind of idea and that kind of ethos so we're very lucky that we're being able to do this and bring so many children in and be to be involved
the Norfolk School's Opera Project will be performing at the Norwich Theatre Royal on Saturday the 23rd of June. Staying with opera, we're delighted to welcome back the English Touring Opera for their latest season, celebrating Kings and Queens. The programme includes Verdi's Macbeth, Mozart's Ida Maneo and Rossini's Elizabeth I. We spoke to the director of Macbeth, James Dacre, who told us about the global and political inspirations for the peace in modern society. Take me right back to uh, the beginning, James. I mean, obviously your, your background is in, in theatre and directing, but what was it that sort of attracted you first to opera as a director? I think really just the kind of extraordinary uh, collaborative process that uh, any opera or piece of music theatre involves is such a kind of fulfilling exploration of the very many different ways in which uh, stories can be told, stories can be sung, and um, it, it's such a kind of rich palette that you're working from. And I, I think for any director, story is everything, and you know the extraordinary stories that live within the world of opera um, are, you know, not, not of course just served by language, but also by music. You've touched on this slightly, and it's about the sort of the project, if you like, rather than the genre. But are there particular challenges around something like Macbeth and transforming it into an operatic piece that you maybe wouldn't get with a play, or are the challenges the same? It's just a, a different genre. I think uh, what, what's became so apparent to us in uh, preparing Macbeth and rehearsing the project was how comparable uh, Verdi's imagination and uh, process uh, clearly was to Shakespeare's own, because what we saw really was the kind of restless, active imagination of two young artists, a playwright and a composer, who were both drawn, I think, to this source material, both because of its kind of ancient significance uh, to this country, but also this uh, incredible kind of patchwork quilt of different genres that the story of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth offers in the way that it combines something of a historical drama with a gothic horror, a kind of captivating kind of detective thriller, but also, you know, this very complex kind of domestic kind of love story. And so what we really see um, in, in both Shakespeare's version and Verdi's adaptation of it is this incredibly rich uh, kind of concoction of different characters, ideas, but also modes of storytelling. And I think one thing that drove both Shakespeare and Verdi was the power of what a piece of theatre can be and a real kind of excitement about harnessing all of the elements of stagecraft that were available to them both in their respective eras and creating the most kind of immersive, uh, exciting and dynamic kind of piece of stagecraft they can. And one thing that is so fascinating in uh, studying both Shakespeare's play and also Verdi's opera and looking from both you know, both men's drafts, but also what scholars have told us about them, it is that they clearly both changed their source material according to the theatrical conventions of the time as they evolved in their own lifetime. So we know, for example, that when Verdi later revived the opera in Paris and having seen a production of Shakespeare's Macbeth in London, he was really fascinated by the use of things like... Um, holograms of the age and trap doors and the kind of powerful different workings of the stagecraft that was being invented at the time and all of that kind of went back into creating this 
um, epic kind of uh, theatrical spectacle. And so, so really, actually, kind of what we see in both instances is the power of very active theatrical imaginations, but also a real acknowledgement that you know, opera and theatre staging is always about the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. It's an act of collaboration that brings together a very wide range of different um, musicians and artists to, you know, tell a story um, in, in ways that, that really, you know, try and transport the audience to um, a, 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 a world that is quite an intoxicating and immersive one. And with all these elements there, I'm very interested now to, to look at what you did with it. There was a wonderful line I read in one of the reviews that said Macbeth is a direct playground, which is probably very true. Why have you chosen to interpret Macbeth in the way that you have with this particular production? I think we were very interested in how Macbeth is both a story, you know, for the Elizabethan age, but then again for Verdi's age, and indeed quite a kind of timeless story in the way that it draws upon uh, you know, various old English uh, sources. And it felt very important to us that this is a um, story that we're putting on stage for our own age, for contemporary audiences, but also doing so in a way that is really respectful of the source material and tries to capture kind of all of the heraldry and iconography as well of the Elizabethan period. So we looked quite a lot initially at um, uh, the way in which uh, Shakespeare himself might have been interested in ideas of witchcraft and the occult, as well as the kind of uh, civil wars that were raging across England and Scotland at that time. We were also fascinated by the way that James I himself uh, wrote a treatise on witchcraft and uh, themes of witchcraft, you know, you know clearly uh, ran not just throughout this play, but throughout many plays of the age, which of Edmonton, you know, many more uh, that, that, that continue to be kind of regularly revived today. And, and, and what that really kind of drew us towards was actually saying, well, can we create a dystopian 20, 21st century world that tries to draw upon a lot of the imagery of Shakespeare's time, but also what is it that unites conflict zones in the Elizabethan era and the Jacobean era with conflict uh, today? And one thing we found in uh, so many of our uh, case studies, be it Passchendaele and the Somme, or indeed the Balkan conflicts, Middle Eastern conflicts, uh, South American conflict, was that over and over again, areas that have known extended periods of civil war, and particularly areas that exist in the kind of border territory between split, conflicted countries, often see a kind of emergence of new religious movements and theories of witchcraft and, you know, shamanism and stories of the occult that, that feel like they are kind of born of a particular need for the idea of the supernatural, the idea that the world is so bad around us that we need to kind of draw upon the spirit of, um, you know, the supernatural and, and, and the divine in order to, um, you know, really kind of affect change in that world. And so really the kind of setting uh, for our production is a border wall. It's the kind of border wall that we might have seen um, between uh, Scotland and England at a time where there was great conflict between those nations, or the kind of border wall that you might recognize from many iconic images of the last century, from the Berlin Wall through to uh, walls in Eastern Europe or, 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 or all across the world. And, and, and of course, it's barely a day that goes by today without hearing the rhetoric of division and of walls from America, famously with the Republicans talk of a border wall with Mexico. Mm. But also this idea of barriers and the idea of division and conflict feels um, 
you know, so key to these kind of troubling political times that we live in. Burnham Wood, the kind of border that divides England and Scotland, and then the actual compound of the castle itself are all kind of one and the same kind of reality. And what if that reality looks and feels a bit like the kind of dystopian realities that uh, you might see in George Orwell's 1984 or Aldous Huxley's Brave New World or indeed Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, which mm. is a... Um, uh, both a novel and now a TV series full of uh, images of borders and all kinds of um, heightened senses of, um, uh, you know, the supernatural and of the occult. So it, it was a bit of a collage, really. And, 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 and I think really what, what so often one does when taking these classic texts and reimagining them for contemporary audiences say, is saying quite kind of... Um, uh, in quite a kind of scavenger-like kind of fashion. Yeah. Well, let's let's borrow from the whole rich history of different symbols and images that these stories draw upon, and and create a kind of patchwork quilt that that hopefully reflects the kind of uh, genre mixing of both uh, Shakespeare and Verdi, but also really feels to an audience like it's full of sights and sounds that are hopefully familiar to them, but also kind of strange and, 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 and unusual in the way that a kind of uh, macabre piece of work like this demands to be. So I was really interested with the witches and that, having them as these sort of First World War nurses, and I thought it was really interesting. Again, it just, it just brings that message home, doesn't it, about this whole conflict thing, and they're there in the background. And, and, you know, one kind of question we wanted to ask in the rehearsal room, particularly in terms of the kind of gender politics of the play, what if actually the witches are not there just to harm mm. Beth? What if also they're there to nurture him and to restore him to health, but also to act as a kind of provocation, you know, to him, but both guiding him towards this kind of uh, descent towards the destruction that he pursues, but also, you know, what if they are the invisible and the evicted in society, the kind of people that do live at borders and that do occupy conflict zones? And of course, we know that in modern warfare, that's often missionaries yeah, or it's yeah. the Red Cross or it's nurses uh, or, 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 or simply those that are, are performing quite kind of um, uh, you know, com comparatively functional kind of roles rather than kind of soldiers, uh, you know, um, 13 AK-47s and so on. So, so it felt an interesting idea to ask, well, actually, what if the reason that the, that the witches are kind of pushed to the outside of society is actually a choice of theirs rather than simply because, you know, they, they are ostracized? Um, and, and actually, what if they... they, they have the ability not just to harm but also to heal. Um, yeah. and so hopefully some of those ideas will come across to audiences. The final thing I wanted to talk about briefly is sort of stepping away from it better as a piece and both in your work with this particular production but the work you've done for Globe and the West End of the Durngate is just how important it is that work like this production and Macbeth and I think are actually going out around the country and it's not just concentrated in London. It's really important that productions like this are going out around the UK to Norwich and, and elsewhere with ETO. Uh, absolutely, and, and you know we are all working in a challenging financial climate at the moment, and it's um, there is so much to admire in the commitment that an organisation like English Touring Up uh, has made, not just to touring their work widely, 
but to ensuring the highest level of production values and ensuring also that you know ultimately their investment is on putting artists on stage and so what audiences can absolutely expect from a piece like this is something of the scale ambition commitment and talent that they would see in any major opera house and it's just extraordinary thing that it's possible uh, not just to see one of their operas on the road but three at any given moment because of course they tour in yes. repertory with one another and that's such a rich opportunity as well for all involved and the reason I'm sure that they're able to attract the kind of talent that they do is you know it's a rare gift to be able to say for example to a chorus member here's an invitation not just to uh, originate one remarkable um, production but actually to appear in three and yes. that is an invitation that is also offered to audiences and as a creative one of the most thrilling things about um, a, a job like this one is the knowledge that some of the audiences that we will pay to will be very familiar with this material they might have seen the opera several times before or at least have a familiarity with the play but many will have no affinities with it whatsoever and many will also be seeing it for the first time they might be young people who um, might go on in years to come to study it or um, they, they might be for the very first time seeing an opera and um, I, I'm, I'm personally based um, in, in uh, Northampton as a theatre mm. and Dangate yeah. and have always kind of dedicated my career to working in uh, large regional regional theatres and, and feeling the enormous kind of thrill of doing so yeah. that kind of communal encounter that you create between audience members some of whom have seen these stories for the first time and some of whom you know know them intimately but have seen them told in ways they couldn't imagine The English Touring Opera runs from Thursday the 25th to Saturday the 27th of April. That's the end of our show this month. Thanks to Joe Barbrook, Reese Corston, Gillian Shaw, Eleanor Bowers-Jolly and James Dacre. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Acast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let us know what you liked and what you want to hear in future episodes. Thank you very much for listening to Interval, the Norwich Theatre Royal podcast.